Hi folks, I'm Alan Wharton. This is Cutting Through the Matrix on the 11th of July 2012. I always suggest newcomers make good use of the website CuttingThroughTheMatrix.com. You'll find over a thousand audios for free download where I take you through the journey of the system from its beginnings, really. It's its beginnings that it first advertised the general public a hundred years ago. They got together, you know, the rich men of the world, basically, the international money lenders, and how they got together. They already owned corporations, and they thought they'd take over the world, basically, and make it the way it should be made, not the way it was sort of willy-nilly, all haphazard. They thought a planned society across the planet would suit them best for their own interests, of course. And, uh, and they've been working steadily at it ever since. And that came out from the writings of the Royal Institute of International Affairs and the Council on Foreign Relations, the, the organizations that have uh, branches across the whole planet in every country. They put in prime ministers that have got to be members and presidents too. They've done it for a hundred years now. So uh, literally, this organization is the most powerful one on the planet. Every newspaper reporter of any worth at all is a member of it. And that's the same with television and etc. Uh, lots of guys in academia are on board with it too to, to get this world agenda through, which they say is going to give, bring us peace and all the rest of it but in reality it's going to be an authoritarian society because their own think tank, which is the, the Club of Rome, uh, says so they, they can't use democracy they'll certainly use the name democracy to steamroll other countries into submitting, but once it's all done you'll find you're all under the same authoritarian structure. So yourself to the audios, find out about it, find out about the books to get and buy and, and peruse because these guys do like to boast about their parts they've played over the last hundred years when they retire generally and uh, put out their biographies and that's how you learn about the big agenda. And really, it's so incredibly huge, it staggers the mind. The financing behind it, the thousands of think tanks they own that guides all media. They own the media, of course, and it's no surprise that we're all going down the same track across the world and we're being standardized. All cultures are being standardized into the same indoctrinations. Remember, two of you are the audience that bring me to you because I don't bring on advertisers as guests that scare you and then sell you the antidote. So it's up to you if you want to hear this kind of stuff to keep me going by buying the books and discs at CuttingThroughTheMatrix.com. And you can donate as well. And from the U.S. to Canada, remember, personal checks are good, as are international postal money orders from the post office. You can send cash and you can use PayPal across the world, Western Union, MoneyGram and PayPal once again. Remember, straight donations are really, really seriously welcome at this time. But that's the thing. Everyone is stuck in a little world. We have a, a little world, a little bubble that everyone lives in. And we like routines as well. We'll come home and do the same kind of things or see the same kind of things on television. And because of that, we're so easily, incredibly easily managed. When we come home from work, we don't want to listen to serious stuff. We want 
something that's going to help us zong out basically from the rotten day we've had doing a, a pretty useless and pathetic job of some kind or another. And uh, while that's all happening, the big foundations, the foundations that put out trillions of dollars a year across the world to non-governmental organizations are constantly at work, night and day, with their think tanks, shaping the course of the world. Because you think, and you're taught to think by the media, which again the CFR owns, you're taught to think that things just develop by themselves with a crisis coming along and the government deals with it on the spot. Nothing is further from the truth. You're living through a planned society, a planned system, where even the wars that are happening right now were planned 40, 50, 60 years ago. Back with more after this break. Hi folks, we're back cutting through the matrix. I've gone on about the system so long and uh, the, the decline, of course, actually it's a nosedive we're in right now, a nosedive to the bottom of what culture can possibly end up being and how it's all uh, planned that way. It's planned that way. People realize that, that, that when you grow up and, and when you're, well, actually when you're born and then you start growing, everything is geared right at you. There's whole marketing divisions aimed at every age group from three years old, the cartoons and PC things inserted into the cartoons, which the companies get paid for doing that. Same with novels for children. And um, we live in constant indoctrination. We're under it all the time. And once you get to school, of course, school is the biggest indoctrinator of all because without indoctrination at school, uh, you, you won't be able to take on, as they say, subsequent propaganda as you grow older. And so you must get a good indoctrination at school. It won't, it won't take, basically, afterwards. But the ones that, those at the top use marketing all the time, massive marketing and marketing companies understand uh, neuro-linguistics, psycholinguistics, how to bend uh, anything into something that sounds nice or, or, or even irrelevant at times. We read the articles all the time, but in actual fact, we should be kind of horrified when we actually understand what they're saying. It's like the same terms that the military use as well, use as well. Smart bombs, for instance. So what was smart about blowing people up with a bomb and things things like that um, but it's, 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 it works on your mind because it, it softens the reality of the impact of the story and that happens all the time so much so they can actually guide you to go along with big movements and join them in fact or even put your name down to protest something it's so easy to get you on board with the big world agenda without even understanding how it's done the communists were fantastic at this because they were run by the same globalists and they had so many front groups out there, uh, that even Christian front groups that signed on, especially petitions and so on. And before you knew it, the, those, those Christian organizations were then under the microscope of the FBI and they were still clueless that they were involved in something for communism. So it's the same thing with the, the terminology that's used today. And I was thinking of that today because this article here touches on some other things as well. It says, Melinda Gates talks eugenics. 
And it says this July, I guess it's Britain is celebrating the centennial anniversary of London's first international eugenics conference of 1912. That was the first open conference they had. Before that, it was all in their old boys clubs, uh, and they'd chat about the inferior types. But then they had the open one at the, the first international eugenics conference. It says one century later, on July the 11th, 2012, today, the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation, which is the largest private foundation in the world, and the British government will co-host a new London conference on eugenics with global coalition partners such as American abortion chain Planned Parenthood, British abortion chain Marie Stopes International and United Nations Population Fund, which is the UNFPA. The only difference is that the July 2012 London conference will never acknowledge that eugenics is the driving idea. Melinda Gates has claimed that the conference, which is officially dedicated to delivering more modern family planning tools to more women in the world's poorest countries, should involve no controversy. I said, but what is eugenics and what has it forced it to go incognito over the last century? Eugenics is the infamous idea that governments should decide which kinds of citizens ought to be considered desirable. The 1912 consensus that these tend to be white, athletic, intelligent and wealthy and which kinds of citizens ought to be considered undesirable. These tended to be black, Jewish. Actually, if you read um, H.G. Wells, he added the Jews into the superior types, so they had different ideas on it. Disabled or poor, and employ the power of the state to encourage ideas of desirable citizens, uh, which is called positive eugenics, and encourage decreases of undesirable types. It's called negative eugenics. The founder of eugenics, Sir Francis Galton, the half-cousin of Charles Darwin, formulated the idea that the protection afforded by civil society had prevented the kind of natural selection occurring in Darwin's origin of species from happening in humans, uh, thus uh, perpetuating the existence of weak and feeble-minded people who would have been unable to survive in the state of nature. Eugenicists differed on whether eugenics should be practiced in a soft manner with taxpayer underwritten incentives or in a hard manner using coercive and often deadly force. The movement claims many adherents. Planned Parenthood founder Margaret Sanger and her British counterpart Marie Stopes were both involved in the national eugenic societies. Margaret Sanger viewed her activism as a way to assist the race towards the elimination of the unfit. And Sanger also idolized both Stalin and Hitler. Marie Stopes uh, lobbied for the sterilization of those totally unfit for parenthood to be made an, um, immediately po- an immediate possibility, indeed made compulsory. She wanted compulsory sterilization. Uh, the public appetite for open eugenics greatly waned after the fall of Nazi Germany, because Germany was copying America at the time that was sterilizing people, and the Nazis' attempt to use eugenic justifications for the Holocaust and Nuremberg trials. Unfortunately, that deal lives on. Melinda Gates, wife of Microsoft founder Bill Gates, said recently, government leaders are now beginning to understand that, that providing access to contraceptive is a cost-effective way to foster economic growth. Government should provide all women with access to family planning tools that are safe and effective and meet the needs of women, all women. This is a succinct summary of soft negative eugenics. For economic reasons, government should use taxpayer dollars to underwrite the decisions of citizens to pursue a recreational sexual activity. The underlying economic assumption is that the prospective children of the poorest citizens likely to utilize such government-funded programs would be likely to hamper economic growth if they're born. 
However, the no-controversy mantra on the soft eugenics push has been complicated by the fact that hard eugenics has recently been making resurgent splashes in the news. China's one-child forced abortion policy has been highlighted by the heroic escape of Chen Zhuangsheng, uh, a blind dissident sentenced to four years in prison by the communist government for exposing the brutality of its forced abortion policy to the U.S. Embassy governor. Romney has made the one pelt uh, uh, issue an issue in the campaign trail by vowing to discontinue funding to the United Nations Population Fund, which he won't, of course, which the Obama administration has helped finance in spite of its support of the one-child policy. They're all the same. They won't change it. The Guardian newspaper has exposed the fact that the British government has spent millions of pounds funding a policy of forced sterilization of the poor in India as part of an effort to reduce population uh, to help combat climate change. <laughs> so a great excuse. Eh? Let's kill them all because of climate change. Yep. So anyway, it says the governments of China and India, underwritten by American and British tax dollars, practice hard eugenics coercive measures undertaken by governments to decrease citizen population. The exposure of support for hard eugenics causes denial and backtracking. UNFPA claims to support voluntary family planning in, in China. They assume that women who know uh, that conceiving a second child will result in a forced abortion have the liberty to be voluntary. The British government claims its supports of for, forcible sterilization is about to change. Hard eugenics is the ideology that dare not speak its name, but soft eugenics is based on the same disturbing belief that government should spend its resources to prevent the propagation of those whom the government believes to be detrimental to society and economic growth. And, uh, and eugenics uh, really is a big, big major topic uh, in all uh, peoples across the planet. And another thing I want to touch on tonight too is to do with fracking. Fracking, of course, is this basic, this going to get gas uh, from under the earth and the, the amount of uh, water plus chemicals they pump down there trying to fracture, uh, high pressure, fracture uh, uh, the different veins to let the gas out and maybe the, the, the damage it does. And this article here, I'm not, I don't know if it's a handout by those who do the fracking because it certainly doesn't answer any questions. It says, can fracking pollute water? And study tries to answer. And it says, um, a new study being done by the Department of Energy may provide some of the first solid answers to a controversial question. Can gas drilling fluids migrate and pose a threat to drinking water? Because they're doing it all over the U.S. A drilling company in southwestern Pennsylvania has given researchers access to a commercial drilling site, said Richard Hammock, a spokesman for the National Energy Technology Laboratory in Pittsburgh. The firm let scientists conduct baseline tests, allowed tracing elements to be added to hydraulic fracturing fluids, and agreed to allow follow-up monitoring. This should let scientists see where the drilling fluids move upwards or sideways from the Marcellus Shale, which is 8,100 feet deep at that spot. It says it's a perfect laboratory. Uh, Hammock says he believes it's the first time such research has been done on a commercial gas well. Conceptually, it sounds like a really great idea, said P. Lee Ferguson, a Duke University civil environmental engineer professor who is not involved with the project. I've wondered about this since I started thinking about fracking, which compounds are mobile and which aren't. The Marcellus Shale is a gas-rich rock formation thousands of feet under large parts of Pennsylvania. New York, Ohio, and West Virginia. Over the past five years, advances in drilling technology made the gas accessible, leading to a boom in production, uh, jobs and profits, and concerns about pollution. The gas is pulled from the ground through a process called hydraulic fracturing, 
or fracking, in which large volumes of water plus sand and chemicals are injected deep underground to break shale apart and free the gas. Well, the whole thing is, that does the stuff get into the water supplies? Well, it, well, of course it does, because water is constantly flowing. And tonight I'll put up a link to uh, the government report. It's a PDF, actually, uh, where they actually list all. It's very rare to get this, but it, eventually it came my way, and it's got all the chemicals which they use and the fracking, and it's enough to make your hair stand on end when when you see them, because... Um, it's got xylol and, and, and toluol and all these things, xylene, I should say, and toluol and a whole bunch of really nasty cancer-causing chemicals uh, in there, never mind being volatile as well. But uh, it, it's just it's very, very scary to see all the stuff that's put in there. But I'll put this up tonight, all the links to this tonight, at cuttingthroughthematrix.com, and I think that may answer your questions for you, never mind the article that I just read. And that's the music coming in, so I'll be back with more after this break. Hi folks, we're back, cutting through the matrix and... Talking about all these different articles, the, the mainstream dishes out for us, mind you. Some of them were meant to know, it's meant to make us scared, and you conform through fear, basically, and it's an old, old technique that you conform through fear. Uh, and so they put these articles out to make you even more afraid and more subservient and obedient. That's why these articles, like this following one, are put out to the general public. Hidden government scanners will instantly know everything about you from 164 feet away. Within the next year or two, the U.S. Department of Homeland Security will instantly know everything about your body, clothes, and luggage with a new laser-based molecular scanner fired from 164 feet, which is 50 meters away. Uh, from traces of drugs or gunpowder on your clothes to what you had for breakfast to adrenaline level in your body, agents will be able to get any information they want without even touching you and without you knowing it. The technology is so incredibly effective that in November 2011, its inventors were subcontracted by InQtel to work with the U.S. Department of Homeland Security. InQtel is a company founded in February 1999 by a group of private citizens at the request of the director of the CIA and with the support of the U.S. Congress. According to InQtel, they are the bridge between the agency and the new technology companies. Their plan is to install this molecular level scanning in airports. It can scan the molecular level. And border crossings all across the U.S. The official stated goal of this arrangement is to be able to quickly identify explosives, dangerous criminals, uh, or bioweapons at a distance. The machine is 10 million times faster and 1 million times more sensitive than any currently available system. That means it can be used systematically on everyone passing through airport security, not just suspects or randomly sampled people. Well, why would that be strip surgery as well in that case? Analyzing everything in real time, since the machine can snuff out a lot more than just explosives, chemicals, and bioweapons, the company that invented it, Janaya Photonics, says that its laser scanner technology is able to penetrate clothing and many other organic materials and offers spectroscopic information, especially for materials that impact safety, such as explosives and pharmacological substances. 
uh, formed in Montreal in 2009 by PhDs with specialities in lasers and fiber optics. Janaya Photonics has 30 patents on, its, on this technology, claiming incredible biomedical and industrial applications from identifying individual cancer cells in a real-time scan of a patient to detecting trace amounts of harmful chemicals in sensitive manufacturing processes. Hidden government scanners will instantly know everything about you. And it says, um, meanwhile, NQTEL states that an important benefit of Genoa Photonics implementation as compared to existing solutions is that the entire synchronized laser system is comprised in a single robust and alignment-free unit that may be easily transported for use in many environments. This compact and robust laser has the ability to rapidly sweep wavelengths in any pattern and sequence. So not only can they scan everyone, they'd be able to do it everywhere, the subway, the traffic light, sports events, everywhere. And then it goes on to tell you how it works for those who are just crazy about science. Science will bring us all in the grave the way it's going. And uh, it certainly is not making life easier for people. Uh, it's making a lot of money for people in the industry, certainly. But it's making life more of a, a horror show for all of us. There's no doubt about it, along with the policies, of course, for, of the globalists. Now, India, massive market there for, for pharmacology, as everyone can imagine. But uh, Big Pharma's been trying to get them to sign on. Because Big Pharma has got the U.S. government to sign on for all the various drugs for years and years and years. Same with Britain through the National Health Service. And it's a great way to do business when the government say, okay, we'll take orders for this particular drug or vaccine for the next 10, 20 years. All these orders in advance. That's why they're like governments, you see. Anyway, India is refusing to bow down to Big Pharma. And it's a stunning move. India is in the process of implementing a policy to deliver low-cost medicinal products to their citizens, unlike most developed countries who grant exclusive rights to market medicines and biologics. India allows the generic low-cost reproduction and distribution of any patented medicine. And it says that um, the Indian government is finalizing a plan to give up billions of pounds worth of essential medicines to patients in government-run hospitals and clinics, the biggest scheme of its kind in history. The landmark project would be another massive blow to Western pharmaceutical giants who are already struggling to find a foothold in the world's second most populous country. Well, they'll have to bribe the officials at the top like they do everywhere else and get it passed in law that they've got to use their ones, which they'll probably do. The West Big Pharmaceutical Firms, or Big Pharma, has long been thwarted on the subcontinent where the authorities freely allow generic drug companies to manufacture cheap copies of patented medicines. Doctors will be ordered to use only generic drugs in the program, which is expected to be approved in the next couple of months. If a doctor prescribes a branded medicine, they will face a hefty fine. Analysts believe the policy will cause the big pharmaceutical companies to rethink their emerging markets strategy. And it goes on a bit further, too, for those that want to read it. But it's interesting that, uh, I mean, give them time, believe you me, give them time and enough bribery. And India's always been open for bribery. You'll find the government will change their policies. And this article, too, I'll put up tonight. It's also but one of the, you, you understand everything on television has an alternative purpose. Alternative motives for being on the side to indoctrinate you or it's to, to get you to do something or behave in a certain way. That's very good at getting behavior changes, behavior modification and predictive programming for things to come so you'll accept things. But also, um, it's to do with people you're taught to 
believe in. And I'll talk about one of these characters when I come back and how he's been conning the public back after this break. You're listening to the Republic Broadcasting Network because you can handle the truth. Hi, folks. We're back, cutting through the matrix, talking about television and how if you check out the hosts, because they often, especially the ones who are doctors and specialists and this, that, and the other, but they're actually really paid advertisers in a sense. It's articles about one of them, celebrity, celebrity addiction specialist Dr. Drew Pinsky is under fire for helping market an antidepressant for uses not approved in the Food and Drug Administration. GlaxoSmithKline, oh, them again, which makes the drug well, Butrin, agreed to pay a $3 million fine on Friday in a Boston courthouse. And it says the British drug maker reportedly paid Life Changers, that's I guess the series on television host, Dr. Drew, $275,000, there's quite an incentive, eh, to promote an antidepressant, uh, the antidepressant for non-approved uses such as obesity, addictions and sexual dysfunction. According to the complaint, as host of the late-night sex and romance radio program Loveline in the 1990s, Dr. Drew spoke at length about using antidepressants to revive relationships and intimacy and encouraged listeners to check a website registered to GlaxoSmithKline. But the Justice Department's complaint against Dr. Drew found that he never revealed that he was a a paid spokesman. You're really listening to hour-long ads for, for those who haven't figured it out when you watch all these programs. They're always, there's, there's other ones out there doing it today, even, even more popular than this guy. In a statement to Forbes, Dr. Drew defended comments on Melbutrin, citing a clinical study he conducted over a decade ago, and so on and so on. But yeah, he was definitely on the take uh, for and pushing it on television. And then the whole idea is to get the, the, the watchers to go to their doctors and ask for the particular drug he's on about. And it's an old scam, but it works very well. Londoners, in, in a, you know, imagine living in London and getting a, a whole battery of missiles put on your rooftop for the Olympic Games, eh? So Londoners lose their bid against rooftop missiles for Olympics because, you see, Britain is the most democratic country in the world. And it says, it's been a tough few months at the pockmarked concrete high-rise known as Fred Wig Tower. First there was a fire which left dozens of residents temporarily homeless. Then came the rash of burglaries of, of fire-damaged apartments. And now the British Army will be putting a battery of high-velocity missiles on the roof. The Defence Ministry says the missiles capable of shooting down a hijacked aircraft are a key piece in the elaborate jigsaw of security for the London Olympics, which starts July 27th. But many residents of the London Public Housing Project were dismayed to find themselves suddenly on the counter-terrorism front line. This is kind of scary now, to be honest, says Iqbal Hossein, who lives in the building with his wife and three children, aged 2 to 14. If it's about safety for the Olympics, what about safety for us? This is a terrorist attack. The first thing they're going to do is attack the missiles. Well, it is madness, of course, but again, it's training the public again that this is, get used to it, because it's going to go on for the rest of your lives and your children's as well. Perpetual terrorism and perpetual war. This is that simple, really. And then the cost of Olympics is to spiral to 24 billion pounds, 10 times higher 
than the 2005 estimate. Well, that's standard of a government. And is any wonder when we're forking out £335,000 for a single sculpture for the Olympics, just for one single sculpture? So the final bill could be ten times higher. The predicted cost of the Games when London won the bid in 2005 was £2.37 billion. The figure has now spiralled to more than £12 billion and could reach as much as £24 billion. This is the Sky Sports investigative team claims. The Olympics public sector funding package, which covers the building of the venue, security and policing, was up to around £9.3 billion in 2007. And it's a waste of money, taxpayers' money was used to pay for this um, Olympic sculpture by Richard Harris, which will greet motorists entering the sailing events in uh, Dorset. And that, that one sculpture was £335,000. Uh, Day of the Trivids, Jurassic Stones has been blasted by residents who are furious about the cost when the country is in an economic meltdown. It's like ancient Rome, eh? the fiddle while it burns. Just spending and having a great old time at the top and parties for the big boys and using the taxpayers' money like, you know, there's no tomorrow. That's really, that's really what it is. But you have to get used to that too, because they'll have a lot more of these parties for themselves uh, all throughout the year once they really get going. In Madrid, Spain, you've got uh, Spanish police uh, firing rubber bullets now at miners who are protesting at cutbacks in their, in their subsidies because they get poorly paid to start with, and things are getting nasty there under the, the auspices of austerity. Still, it has all here in the West, uh, in the States and Canada, but uh, Canada will be very, very good at it. They'll, they'll just slip it in bit by bit by bit, and people won't even notice until they're utterly poor. And then it's, they'll all be poor together, so they think it's just one of the new, new normals that happen by themselves. But in the States, they're expecting trouble. And Nova Scotia and the East Coast, they've always had the, the short end of the stick when it comes to big business and work. And uh, it's like the government almost wanted to keep it like a tourist industry, also keeps it free for the big naval boys there too, with their bases for the U.S. and Canada. So they've never allowed really big, uh, any opportunity to go into Nova Scotia. So uh, what's happening now under the internationalism and all the rest of it, they are allowing businesses to to develop that will give other people work, of course, and other companies from other countries work. But it says uh, uh, Natural Resources Minister Charlie Parker made a clear choice about the kind of business Nova Scotia really supports. Rather than defend the rights and interests of a Nova Scotian family business, he sided instead with DDV Gold, a subsidiary of Australian company Atlantic Gold, granting the mining company vesting orders and thus ownership of 14 parcels of land in Moose River gold mines. And it's open source gold mines, you know, where they literally... Uh, just spray the stuff out and uh, leave massive craters in the ground or, or else demolish a whole hill to get a couple of ounces. But anyway, some of that belongs or that belonged to the Higgins family that had refused to sell any land, pointing out that they run a successful and sustainable business, providing five full-time jobs and 25 seasonal ones, producing Christmas trees on land that's been in the family for generations. So the government overruled them and basically, you know, you either take the government's offer or you get nothing at all, but going to, the government's going to get it either way because the mining company is getting it instead. And uh, so they'll come in there and extract what they can and pull out and leave uh, the taxpayer to clean up the mess. That's generally what happens. Bill Clinton made $13.4 million in 2011 with his golden tongue uh, uh, speech fees. And um, so it says, 
exceeds its previous record by 25%. Mind you, it's all written by scriptwriters, even when they go on these tours. So he's got a small cut to give to them. The former president's previous record for, for speech income earned in one year was in 2010 when he earned $10.7 million for 52 events. CNN reported his speech earnings last year were nearly double the $7.5 million he earned in 2009. Uh, all total, Clinton has earned $89 million from paid speeches since leaving the White House in January 2001. CNN pointed out that while it's not unusual for former presidents to command millions of dollars in speaking fees after leaving office, Clinton is the only one subjected to strict disclosure requirements. The reason is his wife Hillary Rodham Clinton's positions as U.S. Senator and Secretary of State, because she's, she's got important decisions to make about blowing other countries up and things like that. The Center for Public Integrity estimated in a report last year that former President George W. Bush had delivered almost 140 page speeches for at least 15 million in his first two and a half years after leaving the White House. So it goes on and on and on, uh, comparing them to other people and, and so on and so on. How much per speech they get, sometimes $750,000 for a speech, then they get all drunk and, and all that, and then they all, and they come with the women. <laughs> anyway, that's the world as we know it, eh? I've mentioned before too that there is a plan, and a plan actually to do with making us all utterly debased and degraded, uh, not only to destroy the family unit, to destroy everything basically until everyone's so helpless and dysfunctional that big government and its agencies will control your entire life from birth to death. That is an actual plan, folks, for those who can't quite get that. It's a real, real plan. And we've really plummeted so fast in such a short space of time. I could take a hundred articles probably uh, every other day from across the world that is how far we've gone with our, our debauched system. But here's Los Angeles School. Uh, I mentioned this, I think, last year, but it fires entire staff, fires their entire staff after teachers sexually abused students and fed them semen. That's, I remember reading it at the time. This is an update to it. She's faced with the shocking case of a teacher accused of playing classroom sex games with children for years. Los Angeles School Superintendent John Deasy delivered another jolt. He removed the school's entire staff from custodians to the principal to smash what he called a culture of silence. It was a quick, responsible, responsive action to a heinous situation, he said. We're not going to spend a long time debating student safety. The controversial decision underscores the 51-year-old superintendent's shake-up of the lethargic bureaucracy at the nation's second-largest school district. His swift, bold moves have rankled some and won praise from others during his first years of, of leadership. And it says here, Hired with the man, a mandate to boost achievement in 660,000 pupil Los Angeles Unified School District. That's a huge school. It says, Deez has become known for 18-hour days that involve everything from surprise classroom visits and picking up playground literature, lobbying city elites for donations and blasting Sacramento politicians over funding cuts. And he goes on to say, he also gained a reputation for outspokenness and brisk decision-making style that the sum of criticizes heavy-handed. Earlier this year, for instance, he ordered a substitute teacher fired after finding students busy doing, doing busy work. But um, when the scandal broke out, I can remember when it broke out, and I've got it somewhere in the, in the archive section at cuttingthroughthematrix.com, um, this is what the guy was were doing, blindfolding the students, and actually 
spoon-feeding them semen. Uh, the guy, the teacher involved, one of the teachers involved was Mark Brent, or Berndt, his name was B-E-R-N-D-T, accused of blindfolding students and spoon-feeding them his semen. This is America. This is the, the country that's bringing their culture across the whole world. Mind you, it wasn't invented by Americans either, actually. It's maybe those running America. But um, this is the, 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 how base it becomes uh, at this stage of the game, uh, because everyone, everything that used to be illegal, for very good reasons, is now quite legal and promoted from the top down. Now, it's happening everywhere, because we all get American movies, American shows, and everything else, and that's how you, you get to all these ideas from, plus the massive porn industry that comes out of Hollywood, along with its regular porn called regular movies. It says, my little girl tells me I'm the best dad in the world, but it's not true, I could not protect her. Parents of a girl, four, was raped by a boy of 14, and they tell their full horrifying story. So this is a standard common story now. It's a case that's appalled Britain, a teenage rapist freed after a judge blamed his crime on internet pornography. Here his victims, distraught parents who still live doors away from the attacker, tell their full horrifying story. Were it not for the imposing surroundings, you may have thought the boy in the dock was waiting for nothing more severe than a reprimand from a teacher. Clad in school uniform, rosy-cheeked and slightly on the chubby side, he shuffled awkwardly in the spot, more boy than man, despite his taller than average height. Yet this unassuming demeanour belied the reason for his presence at Cambridge Trump Court this week, which was a singular, singularly horrifying one. As the Mail reported Wednesday, the boy, who cannot be named for legal reasons, had admitted to the rape of a little girl when he was 14. She was just four years old at the time, and he was her babysitter. He tricked his trusting charge by blindfolding her with one of his own dressing-up outfits, or her own dressing-up outfits, and promised her a chocolate. Uh, given both her ages, it's hard to imagine a more sordid and tragic violation of innocence. Little wonder the parents of both uh, the accused and the victim, both respectable married couples, wept quietly throughout the proceedings from opposite ends of the public gallery. Until recently, they were all friends, a relationship that's been forever shattered by what unfolded on a chilly December evening last year. Now, however, the grief of the little girl's parents has been joined with another equally potent emotion, which is anger. Given that the boy, now 15, had pleaded guilty to the violation of their daughter, they'd assumed he'd be given a custodial sentence. Instead, Judge Gareth Hawksworth allowed the teenager to retain his freedom, uh, handing out a three-year community and supervision order, and blaming the boy's actions on the corrupting effects of pornography, as well as the wider society which has allowed it to flourish. And ain't that a fact? I mean, what you see on television, even even the BBC, especially the BBC, it gets thrown in your face. You can't avoid it if you've got a television at all. Even if you're passing a store, you're going to see it. I mean, it's everywhere. That's what we've had rammed down our throats for years now. Whatever you may think of his decision, it's been prompted, it's prompted heated discussion on internet forums and TV. The effect on the victim's family has been devastating. Well, sure it has been, but... The whole society is so degraded now. It, it truly is. And where have been the parents? Uh, as the, mind you, the royals getting lambasted by the liberals whenever they complain about uh, the, the steps that TV was taken step by step as they pushed the envelope into where we are today. Police are embracing a tech that predicts crimes. And it says... Uh, a map of a city is marked up with small red squares, each indicating a 500 by 500 foot zone where crimes are likely to take place next. It's like Minority Report. 
A heat map mode shows even more precisely where cars may be stolen, houses robbed and people mugged. The program is called PredPol and it calculates its forecast based on times and locations of previous crimes combined with sociological information about criminal behavior and patterns. The technology has been beta-tested in Santa Cruz, California Police Department for the past year and in an L.A. police precinct for the past six months with promising results. Predictive analysis and analytics software is the latest piece of policing technology working its way into law enforcement stations around the country, although it's going up against tight budgets, bureaucracy, and a culture still clinging to its analogue ways. Well, we can't keep affording all this kind of stuff, especially when drones and tanks involved and everything else that they're demanding. So it says, we had tried to try something because we were not being offered more cops, said Zach Friend a crime analyst with the Santa Cruz Police Department last year. Friend contacted researchers working on the algorithm, originally used for predicting earthquake aftershocks after reading an article in the LA Times. And it goes on to tell you how it works and all the rest of it and how they come to the conclusions where more crime will happen on a particular night in a particular place. But it's predictive and it's like minority reports. And it's going to get a lot worse too, down to the individual. And I guarantee you, uh, in a few years, you'll see that coming out too. Because now they're taking facial analysis off you too, your expressions and all of that. And they'll want you to be walking along the street one day after an argument with somebody or another. And um, they'll look at your, your face with a grimace on it or a bit of angst on it. And the cops will just lift you and take you in for reconditioning. And that will come, that will come. This article here is about preparing for climate change-related public health scares. This is new paper exposes the warmest next mind games and framing uh, climate change in terms of public health and or national security may make climate change more personally relevant and emotionally engaged, engaging to segments of the public who are currently disengaged or even dismissive of the issue. And it says, don't expect the results of the studio to be made very public, of the study to be made public. But do expect them to be made very well known to the mainstream media and watch them zealously apply the results with abandon soon in future communications with audiences. So it's it's to show you the next tactics of how they're going to go ahead with uh, scaring you to death over climate change. Back with more after this. Hi folks, we're back, and just before I take the caller that's been hanging on the line there, this article goes on to talk about how they're going to use scary stories about your personal health and blame it on climate change to get you active and to make you believe in it all. Such as influenza, mental illness, epidemics, widespread allergies, rheumatism, malaria, cancer, depression, and there was the whole gambit of get blamed on climate change to get people involved. Otherwise, we'll ignore them, you see, with all their scare stories. Now, there's Alex, who's been hanging on the line there. Are you still there, Alex, from New York? Hello? Hello? Yes. Uh, hey, I have a few questions. First one is, I've been listening lately to some old broadcasts from, like, you and other people and, like, going back to, like, the 60s and stuff. And when I'm listening to people who know what's going on, it's just any of those times, whatever they're saying, it sounds like they can be saying it today as well. Mm -hmm. So I'm just wondering, 
like every year it's like this is the year everything's going to collapse and everything's going to happen right now and we're going to have martial law. Mm-hmm. It just seems like it's been going on like this forever. Oh, it's been going on. It's been, it's been, it's all prepared long before 9-11 happened. Because uh, first of all, they could prepare everything through government agencies and laws, get laws on the books, uh, all that kind of thing. And the United Nations kept churning out their, their plans for the future. So many government meetings, so many international meetings, uh, giving out their plans for the future. So you didn't have to guess at what was coming. If, if you stuck to what was delivered out there by the big foundations themselves. And then, of course, 9-11 came in and they had the perfect scenario. In fact, the, the actual club that Bush and Wolfowitz and uh, all the rest of his boys belonged to was a project for the New American Century, which in, on their own website said they would need something to happen in America on the scale of Pearl Harbor event to kick off their, their, their whole uh, agenda, which was to take over the entire Middle East and, and uh, grab all their oil and all the rest of it. So they got what they wanted, and then comes martial law, basically, on the general public. You are living in under martial law, although they don't have to use the term martial law, but you're living under it nonetheless. So there was no guesswork involved as to where it was to go. And if you go into the writings of those concerned with the big international meetings, those involved at the United Nations, you'll see all the rest of the stuff that's to come, where they said they'd emasculate the males. Uh, you see that today. It's already happening chemically. Um, infertility is the most rising problem they have in the Western countries. That's not by chance either because overpopulation was another big concern for them. And, and then all the trade treaties would bind the world together under global governance. Well, we're here today with that. Your government's signing trade treaties, but one every other month with some other group. Uh, everything that was predicted is happening as you speak today. And uh, and they're going right up now with the predictions up into the year 2054 and, and 2040. Or, and it depends on the organization. Yep. Okay. And also I was wondering if you felt like the um, elite hated black people more than others and why do they, if so? Well, that all came out um, after... H.G. Wells drew up a, a list of them, so did uh, some of the biggest economists that worked for Britain, uh, of those that would be exterminated. American Indians, Irish, Scots, according to H.G. Wells, uh, blacks as well, and so on. They had a whole list drafted up, uh, even with the, the top economists of the time, they all agreed they'd have to eliminate those peoples. They, they said they wouldn't fit into the modern economic system they were bringing in. But thanks for calling. And for Hamish, myself, Ontario, Canada, it's good night to be a God of your God's school with you.